I recently hosted a dinner party to celebrate the publication of my last book about chimpanzee intelligence, my final book. No offense, but no academics were invited. I live in South Louisiana, so I decided to keep it simple. Boiled crawfish, live Cajun music, and beer. Now, a couple of people asked me what the book was about, but I told them just more monkey mind science and sent them back for the crawfish. But of course, there was the one guest who bit back. No, seriously, she insisted, what's the book about? Well, wait, I began awkwardly. Your chimps are fat? No, 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 not their weight. What they understand about weight. Uh, everyday things like rocks, sticks, your glass of beer. Your chimps drink beer? Woo, should have invited them to the party. Now, at that point, I realized I had to explain. No, seriously, I used to study what, if anything, chimps understand about unobservable things. Things like weight. I don't get it. What's unobservable about weight? Well, for example, the sensation in your hand right now as you're holding up that glass of beer. Would you say that's its weight? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Well, then what happens if I take it away and set it down over here? Does it still have weight? Again, I'm going to go with yes. How am I doing? Better than your monkeys? Eh, you'll have to buy the book to find out. Now, come on. How do you know it still weighs something? Well, it's obvious. It's not floating away, is it? Ah, see, it's obvious to you because you have a kind of theory about weight. I mean, nothing fancy, just a common sense theory. And part of your theory says the things that weigh something don't just float away. Anyhow, that's what the book's about. Trying to figure out whether chimps have simple theories about weight. Well, how on earth could you possibly figure that out? Well, the same way you would with a child. Wow, your chimps talk? No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Most of the time, my chimps would hang out in their group, grooming, fighting, wrestling in the hay, foraging, playing with barrels, burlap sacks, all sorts of stuff. But you see, early on, we taught them how to come out one at a time to, to play little games for food, but they were actually carefully designed tests. And the purpose of these tests would be what? Well, to find out if they have a theory of weight. My guest blinked. Well, come on, nobody seriously believes that chimps have theories, do they? Well, a lot of my colleagues do. They think chimps, lots of animals, form simple theories about all kinds of stuff. From gravity and weight to how each other's minds work to whether they're being treated fairly. Well, hold on, hold on. You were lucky enough to play with chimps for a living, and you study what they don't know about weight? Well, no, I mean, among other things, too, you're pulling my leg. Now, look, what's a good dinner host to do? I gave in. No, no, okay, you got me. We really study how smart they are. You know, how they use sticks to fish for termites. Now, that's interesting. You know, I just saw a National Geographic episode where dogs... Yeah. Dogs, cats, monkeys, people love stories about animal intelligence. And like my guests, they love to explain these stories in human terms. I mean, let's face it, it's much harder to imagine an encounter with a chimp for what I think it really is, a kind of alien contact. Now, don't get me wrong, animals are really smart. In many ways, they're smarter than us. The honeybee communicates the location of a faraway patch of flowers to hive mates without saying a word. Bats and dolphins live in a consciousness composed of the reflected sound waves they bark out into the world. Some birds bury tens of thousands of seeds in a season and remember where most of them are months later. But look, here's a hypothesis. What if all these smarts are rooted in the unique blend of each species' body-centered mechanisms, coupled with variations in core abilities like memory and executive function, all interacting with a general mental inference system for, hold on, first-order perceptually-based relational reasoning. Okay, now that's a mouthful, but what I mean is that no one doubts that animals keep track of innumerable perceptual objects in their world, sounds, smells, trees, other animals, and use them to encode past events and to anticipate future ones. 
I mean, hair on end, raised eyebrows from Joe, you're going to be attacked, run away. First order, perceptually based relational reasoning. And nobody doubts that animals abstract out across particular instances of relations, which is part of what makes them so smart. And of course, different species can be smart in different ways. For example, those seed-bearing birds I mentioned earlier have a particularly enlarged region of the brain called the hippocampus, which can behave as a map of sorts, with the equivalent of neural asterisks marking where seeds are hidden. Animals are really smart. On this view, the foundations for the differing intelligences of animals began to emerge uh, during the Earth's explosion of life 500 million years ago. And ever since, evolution has been sculpting, exaggerating, minimizing, and morphing these systems to yield intelligences ranging from elephants to octopi. But let's be clear. On this view, the brains of birds and rats can implement those cognitive maps without knowing anything about maps at all. And dolphins and bats can forage and feed without having any notion of sound or speed. Our baboon, who anticipates attack, need have no inkling of past or future. I tried to make this point for over a decade and a half. Dan Dennett has been making it for almost four. In fact, I'm often reminded of Dan's observation about Alan Turing's great contribution to the cognitive revolution, that in order to be a perfect computing machine, it is not requisite to know a thing about arithmetic. So, when a chimp selects a tool of the appropriate length to retrieve a faraway banana, this doesn't mean she has a notion of space. No more than the exquisite diurnal clocks of animals imply they have a theory of time. So, let's not get too intimidated by the scrub jay who recalls where she buried thousands of seeds when we can't even find our keys. The scrub jay has no concept of memory on this hypothesis. For better or worse, we do. For the aficionados in the room, Derek Penn, Keith Holyoke, and I explained it like this. The human brain alone somehow instantiates the capacity to engage in higher order role-based relational reasoning. Now, a big part of what that means is just this, that we are really good at constructing analogies. And more than that, we're driven to find analogies in the world. We're compelled to look for connections between and among relationships that frequently don't appear perceptually similar at all and add in the kind of symbolism and we speak of metaphor. Look, consider how easily the notion of love yesterday explains the behaviors as diverse as two lips touching, a handful of roses, or a gift of chocolates, or helping a friend repair a flooded home, or how falling sand, the rising sun, the gray hairs erupting into my sideburns are all bound by a common causal framework, time. And our drive to find analogies is what grounds our broader ability to seek out explanations. We stumble upon relationships that don't fit our expectations, and then we hunt for the underlying causes. And humans don't simply seek explanations, we desperately seek them. From the intricacies of our social relationships <laughs> to speculating about the causes of the common cold, we crave explanation. We're thrilled by it. We thrive on it. As my former colleague Alison Gopnik noted many years ago, using a formal analogy, no less, explanation is to human cognition as orgasm is to sexual reproduction. And look, this isn't just true of science. Science is just explanation on steroids, a manic drive for explanation. Well, what about chimps? Do they seek explanations? For example, despite all their social smarts, is there a chimp alive who believes that behind the eyes, the facial expressions and postures of her peers, there lies a hidden world of emotions, beliefs, and experience? 
And how could we possibly know? Well, consider again the seemingly prosaic question of weight. Like our bodies, the chimpanzees registers the effort it takes to lift things. Here's Megan. She's already learned to pick up this box and place it on a small platform. As you can see, it's pretty heavy, and she gets a slice of banana as a reward. Now, after a couple of trials like this, we secretly switch to a much lighter box. <laughs> Studies like this demonstrate that Megan's body remembers the weight of the box. She knows how much it should weigh. But in what sense does Megan know? Does she have the kind of mind that keeps track of weight as an underlying cause common to many different kind of relationships in the world? For example, after a lifetime immersed in human artifacts, can she infer that only a light object will stay balanced on a tower made of paper? Very thin. Could she immediately infer that a heavy object ought to be used to crack a hard nut? Dozens of experiments like this reveal an interpretable pattern. Megan and her peers learn every weight-related relation we teach them, but, but, they don't see the connection between them. For example, Megan learns the relation, the ball that's easy to lift goes on the left, the one that's hard to lift goes on the right. Now, some problems like this take a chimpanzees hundreds of trials to learn everywhere. Others, only a dozen or so. But even after all the hard work that Megan puts into becoming an expert on weight sorting relations, she's absolutely befuddled when we ask her which ball she should roll down a highly familiar ramp a heavy one or a ridiculously light one? Instead, for dozens and dozens of trials, she simply guesses, guesses, until her first-order relational reasoning system catches up, slowly learning the relation in question. Look at how the two relations here are unrelated in her mind, perfect still on ball sorting, at chance on ball dropping down the ramp. Even her ability to see weight is at issue. I mean, you and I easily inferred from the kinematics of Megan's behavior whether the red box that she was lifting is, was heavy or light. Can she do the same? Megan and her peers observed three caretakers struggling to push an 800-pound box into, into position, followed by a light one made of styrofoam that weighs so little it can be twirled around on a finger. Megan knows how to use a rope to pull in a box to grab an apple, but after watching all this, she can't infer which box she should pull. Now, I propose that this is because there isn't a chimp alive, not in the San Diego Zoo, not in South Louisiana, not in Leipzig, Germany, not in equatorial Africa, who represents weight in the way that I'm suggesting here. Weight, for them, is not a common cause that explains the sensation of lifting a box, the indentation an object makes on a pillow, or the shattering of a hard nut. In our technical jargon, Megan and her peers do not have access to the representation function weight. But humans manifestly do. I mean, at some point in our development, we construct an explanatory-like, higher-order representation of weight. Consider four-year-old Gracie. Even before she can comfortably find the words for heavy and light, her brain is computing weight as a common cause of the ramp and ball sorting tests. Strong ball! I used the strong ball! You did? Yeah, it was right here. How could you tell which was the strong one? This one, Gracie holding up the heavy one. How do you know that one's not strong? Because it's not, watch, Gracie picks up the light ball. It's not even strong. She flings it into the air and it pings against the wall, then bounces across the floor. See, it's not even strong. It's not even strong. This one's strong. Look, if the explanation here today were limited to weight, I'd surely be wasting your time. But I believe that the same fact pattern holds across every domain of cognition. For many years, for example, we studied what chimps know about function seeing. 
Using their natural inclination to gesture to others for food and social interaction, we demonstrated that, like us, chimps know a whole lot about the posture and eye movements of others. But we simultaneously showed, using highly familiar scenarios, that despite their everyday experiences, they seemed to have no idea who to gesture to when confronted with someone who could see them and someone who couldn't. Even chimps raised from birth in human homes who were given days of first-person experience playing with a blue bucket that you can see through and a yellow one that you can't didn't seem to know what someone else's experience would be like wearing the same buckets. I mean, look, there's a lot more to this story, but the general point holds. In order for animals to be intelligently responding to the postures, faces, eyes of others, it is not requisite to know a thing about function seeing. Now, a warning, of course. My colleagues disagree. They think animals do have theory-like abilities. But let me offer this secret decoder ring, a framework for assessing their objections. Are there any experimental results demonstrating that animals reason about underlying common causes of relationships between relationships? Or do they just show what no one ever disputed, that, even anim that animals, even us, most of the time, get on very well using first-order perceptually-based relational reasoning, thank you very much. And consider, after a, dec a different project, a decade-long project, investigating the tool-using abilities revealed the same animals. Chimps can make and use simple tools without building or seeking explanations for why they work the way they do. And consider now, more directly, the question of whether or not chimps and humans seek explanations. Whether they ask why. Chimps and children can be taught just about any relational problem within their sensory capabilities. Here, we've taught them the relation stand up this inverted block and get a reward. But when we probe their deeper cognitive attitude toward this situation by switching to a block that can't reproduce the learned relation, the difference between them and us becomes apparent. The cognitive attitude. By four years of age, children rapidly, almost reflexively, intervene augmenting their first-order relational reasoning with focused attempts to diagnose why the block won't stand. They seek out underlying cause. Chimps work hard, occasionally invent clever solutions, but in many studies logically akin to this, they never intervene. They never seem to ask why. So, hooray for humans? Well, time will tell, I suppose. Consider weight again. Even as our species assimilated ideas of weight into scales and balances, pulleys and pyramids, many of these things began to tumble forth from the human mind. Within a blink, humans catapulted from leather slingshots to gravitational slingshots around other worlds. And no more than a few nanoseconds into our post-Newtonian understanding of mass, we cleaved the atom and two bombs fell, like heavy, portending raindrops, harbingers of some awful cataclysmic storm. Politicians, technocrats, and working scientists have desperately staved off this storm for decades, but within our lifetimes they may well fail. It seems to me that increasingly scientists practice explanation as a kind of mania, and maybe always have. And what's coming of this frenetic activity? The great, the good, the bad, the ugly, and worse, that's to be sure. Cancer cures and plague-scale biological weapons. The joys of remote-controlled toys and the terrors of predator drones. Camera-laden pills launched on majestic flights through the human body, and robots the size of a fly that will soon render our notions of privacy perhaps obsolete. 
the endless entertainment of virtual games and the growing waves of children, isolated and angry, texting and sexting. Invisible waves of information connecting us, drawing us closer, sharing experiences in wondrous new ways, and the first clumsy steps toward the wireless implants that will render our precious cell phones archaic and the face-to-face -face communication increasingly quaint. Brain imaging technology locating tumors and traumas and paving the way for ever more powerful forms of control. Implants that allow the deaf to hear, the wounded to walk, and intelligent robots who may sooner than we think start reproducing themselves, taking over as the dominant form of life on the planet. And the transhumanists cheer on, calling for the even faster, more deliberate fusion of human and machine. Some even heralding the extinction of the human race as the logical culmination of our ill-fated explanatory project. <laughs> One thing's certain, the enthusiasm of the human scientist has not waned. And that defining behavior of us, that finger we pointed skyward, lo, those many years ago, demanding to know why, has not curled back. That awestruck child still asserts that nothing must stand in the way of deeper explanation. But look, what if some plucky young scholar were soon to provide a proof, a mathematical certainty that our explanatory addiction has become a tad misdirected, maybe a tad out of whack? What if its upwardly ratcheting effects will inevitably lead to a declining sum of human happiness, or even extinction? What then? Would we conclude that human happiness was overrated, that human life was overrated, or would we make room to consider the possibility that at least in some ways our explanatory mania is itself a little overrated? And look, could we even do anything about this explanation if we wanted? Could we loosen the egoistic bow of that finger? Anyhow, it's poppycock, say the enthusiasts. The scientific truths revealed through the orgasmic explanatory experiences of humans are either A, yielding the best possible of all worlds, or B, unstoppable anyhow. I end with a footnote just to acknowledge that some may find all of this pessimistic, worse yet, anti-intellectual. But quite to the contrary, I'm actually extraordinarily optimistic that the uniquely human capacity to explain, to ask why, will build steam toward exploring and explaining the awesome implications of human explanation itself. And a final, final quick footnote. To those who think a critique like this is easy, it isn't. Performing science was easy. Seeing the effects of science more objectively, far harder. Thank you.